1: Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is James Friedel. James Friedel is associate professor in the Department of English at The Ohio State University. The recipient of multiple awards for his work in rhetorical theory and history, Friedel is the author in 2006 of Rhetorical Action in Ancient Athens, Persuasive Artistry from Solon to Demosthenes, and now The Enthymeme: Syllogism, Reasoning, and Narrative in Ancient Greek Rhetoric. In The enthymeme, Friedel argues that our taken-for-granted understanding of the enthymeme is based on centuries of misreadings dating back to Aristotle. Friedel excavates these layers of misunderstandings and our understanding of this key concept in rhetorical theory to undercover not only a more accurate theory of the enthymeme, but potentially a more useful one. Jim Friedel, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Tom. Um, In my introduction, I described something called a taken-for-granted understanding of the enthymeme. Now, I've had the privilege of reviewing your book for the International Journal of Communication, and I was describing it to some departmental colleagues that included folks both in communication and in journalism. Um, And one of those, uh, uh, someone in journalism asked, what exactly is an enthymeme? That is, what are you communication people talking about? Um, I suspect that many of our listeners might be likewise perplexed, so I thought we should begin with you telling us, what is an enthymeme, at least as it is commonly used by teachers of speech, composition, and logic?
0: Right. So that's very common to hear people say, what, what is an enthymeme? If you're outside the field the fields that you just mentioned, uh, you've probably never encountered the term. And honestly, what, uh, when people learn about the enthymeme in Rhetoric classes, usually graduate rhetoric, graduate study rhetoric rhetoric classes, um, it's it's new to them and it's a it's a temporary, it's a temporary thing. It doesn't get a lot of attention outside of outside of that. Um, so an enthymeme is uh, based on Aristotle, as it is widely understood, is a unit of reasoning, a unit of logic, that is. Uh, based on a syllogism and as many people know a syllogism is a unit of three-part unit of reasoning that has a major premise a minor premise and a conclusion so if I say uh, all all uh, robins are birds and all birds fly then I can conclude that all robins fly and and if you put the pieces together correctly and if the premises are true the conclusion has to be true. And so it's useful, says Aristotle, uh, if you uh, put your propositions into the form of a syllogism in the correct way, uh, you can learn new things, build knowledge, or test the knowledge that you have to see if what you think is true is actually true. And it seems that in Aristotle's rhetoric, the treatise that he wrote on the field of rhetoric, it seems that he says That an enthymeme is a syllogism but with one of the premises missing. So uh, if I say instead of saying all robins are birds and all birds fly I can simply say all birds fly therefore robins fly and you can follow along because you already know the other premise that all birds fly or that all birds are mammals. Um, I don't have to tell you that. So Apparently, uh, says the tradition from Aristotle, the enthymeme is a rhetorical syllogism, number one, because it's briefer, so we don't bore our listeners and we don't tell them things they already know. And secondly, and more importantly, it requires the audience to add in the missing premise, as it were, so they become participants in the argument. And it's thought that if the audience is a participant in the argument, it will be more persuasive because they're helping to build the very piece of reasoning that um, they are asked to agree with. So that's basically what an enthymeme is. It's, it's a short syllogism.
1: Yeah. Or or as you call it in the book, a truncated syllogism.
0: Right. That's the common way to describe it. Right. Um,
1: So I'm wondering, uh, just out of curiosity, what got you interested? Uh, and before we sort of delve into uh, why that taken-for-granted uh, description that you just offered of the syllogism is is essentially mistaken, what got you interested in in an in-depth study of the, the enthymeme?
0: Uh, s- several things. Uh, uh, w- one of the most important ones, I think, is the fact that for For me, and I think in rhetoric, uh, the the field of rhetoric attempts to describe how language works in practice, how texts work on people um, in terms of what they think, in terms of what they feel, in terms of the moral decisions that they make, in terms of what they imagine, what they think is true. And many rhetorical terms have immediate experiential resonance. So, uh, so one rhetorical concept is ethos and ethos is the idea that when we read a text, we get an image of the author in the text and we, uh, gauge our sense of the text's persuasiveness in part on the credibility of the author. And everybody does this. Uh, we see a text and, and based on who we think wrote it, we make decisions about how persuasive it is. And I, I have lots of experiential resonance with that. That, that. that rings true to me. That happens to me um, Absolutely. when I read it. Uh, when I read a text, I get an image of the author. The enthymeme, sure. on the other hand, I, I was baffled by even when I first learned about it as a graduate student. The idea that people write enthymemes by writing syllogisms and then taking out a premise, or the idea that audiences hear enthymemes as syllogisms with a premise missing. I never remember doing that. I, I had no, I had no experience with that, um, encountering any texts that I've ever read, and it's so it was always a kind of um, orphan, like a theoretical orphan, in my mind. And so that one of the things that led me back to that was that sense of frustration that's such a basic feature of. Rhetorical theory, and it is considered a fairly basic feature of rhetorical theory as a piece of re- uh, how how texts introduce reasoning and how reasoning works to persuade people. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, that seemed like a glaring omission to me. So that was that was one of the first steps, and there are others, but that was a big one.
1: Very good. Um, so. As you said, as as your book lays out, you we begin with um, this idea, the, the understanding of the enthymeme that you just described, and you call that enthymeme three uh, the truncated right. syllogism. So, what are I mean, what are some of the the, the problems there?
0: Uh, <laughs> so there. Aside from several. the one
1: that you just mentioned, I guess right at uh, the beginning, is that, it? Uh, you uh, never right. found yourself actually writing
0: one. So there are several problems. Um, one of the problems is the the notion that um, by by dropping a premise, we change something about what the syllogism is. And many scholars have said, you know, drop, drop dropping a premise changes nothing about the logical structure of the syllogism. It's it's essentially the same thing. Um, whether we have all the premises stated or not. The, the kind of inference that you're making, the kind of reasoning that you're doing is the same, whether it's a syllogism or an enthymeme. Um, a more serious problem is that, for me, a careful reading of Aristotle um, suggests that that's not how he described the enthymeme. And and I should say that that version of the enthymeme comes entirely from Aristotle. And it's not just me, it's many scholars before me um, Jeffrey Walker and Bernie and and other cla- both rhetoric scholars and classic scholars uh through a careful reading of Aristotle have said that that's not how he describes the enthymeme it's a misreading of Aristotle um and I can I can go into more detail about why that is um sure but but that's a but that's a big problem the third problem is that as i argue in my book when i when i think about uh, that model of the enthymeme, and when I try to make that work in texts, in written texts, I just don't think it's a very good description of how pers- r- rational persuasion works. And I think that is in part because Aristotle never suggested that the syllogism was something that people write when they're making arguments. The syllogism for him was a logical structure that you could use to analyze an argument to see whether it was valid or not, and to understand how the steps were put together. So thinking about it as something that we produce in natural language interactions, um, that that's a big stretch. That's ne- Aristotle never understood or represented syllogisms to be that kind of thing.
1: But somehow uh, that misreading became sort of the standard way that, again, you know, this is how it's taught in, in public speaking classes. This is certainly how it's taught in composition, I think. Right. Um, Why does that, why do you suspect, or or I know that you know this, but why does that happen?
0: Well, in part it happens because there, there, so There's several pieces to that. Uh, in part, it's because there are, are places in Aristotle where it sounds like that's what he's saying. Um, he does say that enthymemes in rhetoric tend to be shorter than the term that he uses is syllogismos, uh, the Greek term that we translate as syllogism. He says rhetorical arguments are shorter than syllogismos. Um, and He says uh, when you're making an argument in rhetoric, in a legal speech or a political speech, you don't have to say everything if the already, audience already knows it. And so if you, if you translate syllogismos as syllogism and you say with Aristotle that enthymemes can be shorter than those and that certain things you don't have to say if the audience, audience already knows it, the conclusion seems to be that if it's a three-premise syllogism and the enthymeme is shorter... Um, the only way to make it shorter is by dropping one. You certainly can't drop two; that, otherwise you just have one proposition. So you just drop one. So there is language in Aristotle um, with sufficient misunderstanding that you can construe as an enthymeme. So that's that's one part of the answer.
1: And so and and then in addition, you suggest in the introduction to your book um, this this metaphor that you use of. Uh, the city of dialectic and, and the surrounding, uh, maybe a neighboring polis of rhetoric or a neighboring polis of narrative. And that seems to play into this more, a, a more deliberate, not simply a misunderstanding, but sort of a, almost a deliberate misrepresentation, I would think, of what we understand today as an infamy. Um
0: Deliberate. Can you say more about that? Deliberate how?
1: Well, in the sense of there's, in order to become more like dialectic um, Uh, rhetoric, and to essentially um, sort of ape some of the some of the techniques of dialectic, uh, and and in order you know in order to get some sort of legitimacy.
0: Right. Yes so if we think of dialectic as the art of reasoning and aristotle you know has a treatise called the topics where he talks about dialectic as an art of reasoning about one individual questioning another individual about a proposition to determine whether the proposition is true or not and the questions and answers go back and forth until the the respondent either contradicts himself or is unable to answer and in either of those cases you you know you can determine whether the proposition was true or not so that's that was Aristotle's forte. That was what he taught. Um, and when he wrote his treatise on rhetoric, he essentially said that rhetoric is basically like dialectic. He called it the antistrophe of dialectic, which is often translated as the counterpart of dialectic. Right. So that, that fun, fundamental metaphor, that fundamental comparison because of the popularity of Aristotle in the 20th century, when departments of speech and departments of English and composition turned to rhetoric to inform uh, training in speech and composition, they largely turned to Aristotle. And so Aristotle's dialectical view of rhetoric uh, took hold and dominated the conversation. Um, So the, The comparison between the enthymeme and the syllogism, which was already incorrect, um, became became part of that comparison, became part of that conversation. Uh, And Aristotle was so popular that it was very, very difficult to get away from it. And I think the attraction of four people in rhetoric of having their own version of the syllogism their own sort of a rhetorical model of reasoning was very attractive. It's it's um, it's very teachable. It's very reproducible. Uh, I say in, in the book that I think it's just sufficiently difficult for te- teachers and students to appreciate it and simple enough that most people can grab it and sort of be charmed by its uniqueness and clarity um, within a class period or two. And so that's why I said at the beginning of the interview, um, people people uh, tend to teach it in argument classes, in composition classes, in logic classes, in graduate classes, in history of rhetoric, you learn the enthymeme, but it's the kind of thing that you learn and then you just sort of move on. Um, it, it rarely receives sustained attention
1: because, it, it, in that form, it's almost—it's as you said—it's almost impossible to reproduce. And, and you know, as I as I, I wrote in the review that I that I did, uh, I don't know that I have ever heard uh, an enthymeme when you know after after introducing it. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone able to reproduce it. Um, right. So. This moves us along, I think, to what you describe as uh, enthymeme two point right? So if, if right. three point is the the truncated version, as it's commonly taught in in composition and speech classes, then two point is is Aristotle's uh, kind of misreading,
0: right? Right. So you're going to talk about Aristotle's Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, So Aristotle calls the enthymeme syllogismos. Syllogismos is translated as syllogism. It doesn't really mean syllogism for Aristotle, particularly not when he's talking about either dialectic or rhetoric. It it just means deduction. And actually it means um, more basically, um, if we think about deduction as a particular type of reasoning, syllogismos is broader than that. It really just means reasoning. And his definitions... Um, Make it sound like what we would call an inference. He says, if something is true, something else follows. Like if if an audience hears a statement that's true or a series of statements that are true, they think something else is true in addition. And he says, that's syllogismos. And as you can probably hear, that's that's a pretty broad definition. Um, And that's the definition that he starts from. So there there's um, problems with 3.0 in in thinking about the truncated syllogism because Aristotle was never tra- talking about syllogisms. Um, the problem with 2.0 is that Aristotle is uh, when he said that, Aris, that that rhetoric was the antistrophe of dialectic. It really does seem that he's thinking of dialectic throughout much of his treatise. So um, part of the process of studying dialectic involves studying what he calls the topics, and the topics mm-hmm. are what he, called, what he would refer to as forms of reasoning or heads of argument. So, for example, he says um, there is the argument from contraries. So, if, if you have four, uh, four terms, A, B, C, and D, and A is the opposite of B, and A is related to C, then D will be the opposite of C. So, uh, for example, if if uh, temperance or the ability to resist temptation is a good thing, then mm-hmm. um, the lack of temperance, the inability to resist temptation, is the bad thing. So if good is the opposite of bad, then temperance will be the opposite of the lack of temperance. And he says, you know, if, if you're constructing an argument, uh, look and see... Uh, and, and there are contraries involved. Look and see whether, you know, the, one set of contraries can be clarified by tying them to another set of contraries. So that's one of the forms. And he has many forms in the topics. And he does the exact same thing in the rhetoric. And many of the topics in the rhetoric are pr- practically identical to the topics in the dialectic. So he's thinking throughout his rhetorical treatise of rhetoric in terms of dialectic. The problem is, that when you read rhetorical speeches, and when rhetoric, when rhetoric was being invented by Aristotle and other early treatise writers, when they were talking about rhetoric, they were talking mostly about legal speeches, legal arguments in courts, and political speeches in assembly, where people were uh, drawing up policy and deciding, um, making policy decisions. And a few other sort of ceremonial genres like funeral orations and games and contests and things like that. Um, We can can focus mostly on legal arguments because that's where rhetoric was mostly applied. If you read legal cases, it's very difficult to pinpoint an enthymeme, And much of what forms the substance of the legal case is the legal story about what happened and how it applies to the law. And much of the decisions that people make and much of the persuasive effect of the legal speech uh, really stems from that story, in the, uh, or I should say the two competing stories that are given between uh, the two sides of the legal case, the plaintiff and the defendant, or the prosecutor and the defendant. So. Uh, so that, you know, when I said at the beginning that uh, I, I didn't encounter enthymemes, it wasn't part of my experience. I think that especially applies to reading ancient legal cases. And we have about 200 or so, um, both political, but mostly legal speeches from ancient oratory from the uh, 10 Attic Orators. And when you read those speeches, what you're really struck by is how much depends on the story. And how difficult it is to find the kind of dialectical enthymeme that, that Aristotle's talking about. So I think his one of his biggest problems is that that dialectical framework really limited how he understood the kinds of inferences that people are making and that they're leading audiences to make when they're delivering legal speeches. So that's, That's one big problem that Aristotle has, is his dialectic, his decision to frame rhetoric in terms of dialectic. It did a a tremendous favor to rhetoric by establishing it as a kind of reasoning. So if we go back a few years before Aristotle, uh, Plato has very harsh things to say about rhetoric in several of his dialogues. He claims that there is no such thing as rhetorical reasoning. There's philosophical reasoning, and if you do philosophical reasoning and learn the truth about a topic, that's really all you need to know. Uh, Rhetoric doesn't really have anything to add to that other than flattery and obfuscation. Uh, So Aristotle seemed to do rhetoric a favor by saying, uh, well, no, rhetoric does produce a kind of knowledge. It's not certain knowledge, it's not scientific knowledge, it's probable knowledge. Um, But it is a kind of knowledge, and it does have its own kind of reasoning, and that kind of reasoning is called the enthymeme. and here's here's how it's like dialectic and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, for teachers of rhetoric and composition and and speech and communication, that seemed to be um, a very powerful and supportive theoretical framework for resuscitating rhetoric as a legitimate discipline. And um, it it did that. It sustained rhetoric, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it was probably part of the reason why Aristotle was chosen as one of the champions of rhetoric in the 20th century. Uh, but I think it I think it comes at a tremendous cost. It seriously distorts how people actually argue with each other and attempt to persuade each other in living rhetorical encounters.
1: This seems like a good place to take a short break. Um, when we come back, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, uh, some of those issues that you just that you just brought up about the, you know, some of the damage that um, that conceptualization of the of the anthem has produced for us. So um, we're going to take a short break. I'm going to remind everyone that this is the education channel of the New Books Network. And welcome back. I'm Tom DeSena on the New Books Network, and we're continuing our discussion with Jim Friedel about his latest book, The Enthymeme Syllogism, Reasoning, and Narrative in Ancient Greek Rhetoric. Um, Just before the break, you mentioned that. Aristotle's, uh, you know, at one essentially tries to salvage rhetoric by by saying that it is a counterpart to dialectic and saying it has these sort of reasoning-like features to it, but that ultimately that it it does a disservice to the work that rhetoric does, and so I think this is probably a good point to talk about um, what you describe as the enthymeme 1.0, and I wonder if you might want to talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah so having having no experience with enthymeme 3.0 the truncated syllogism I talked about how it, it didn't resonate with me experientially in my encounter with texts and in my production of arguments and as i became more confident in my questioning of aristotle's version of the enthymeme and the inadequacy and most of this most of this came from Reading legal arguments, ancient legal arguments, and contemporary legal arguments, um, I decided to start over. And one of the things that led me to start over was uh, in the process of reading legal arguments from the ancient world. They're they're quite diverse. They're quite entertaining. I came upon um, increasing increasingly frequently. Uh, It was. It's sort of like once you decide to to purchase a certain kind of car, and you started start to notice that car everywhere on the road. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Once I saw this phenomenon in the ancient orders, I began to see it very frequently, and that is uh, the ancient orders. They they never use the term enthymeme. It's almost strictly a theoretical term, and other theoretical treatise writers from the ancient world use that term, the noun. Enthymeme to describe that logical, what Aristotle would say is a logical structure. The the orders never use the term. However, they do use a verb form of the term enthumema, which I translate as enthymize, very, very frequently. And that verb to enthymize has a range of meanings that includes. Uh, to think about something, to consider something, to pay attention to something. Like in a legal speech, to pay attention to a detail, a narrative detail. Maybe to pay attention to a narrative detail that my opposing speaker has mentioned. And in many cases, in the context of the speech, it becomes clear that when the orator says pay attention, gentlemen of the jury, or just think for a minute, gentlemen of the jury, using that verb, enthymize. what they're asking the jury to do is to to understand the significance of a piece of narrative, of a detail from the legal narrative. Uh, Remember, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that uh, when his grandfather asked Uh, his nephews, to bring the magistrate to the house, they refused to do so. And when a magistrate did stop by at the house, they refused to let him enter. That reminding the jury of that detail prompts them to think about what that detail means. In this case, it would be a motive. Why why would they turn the magistrate away? Um, So they use this verb, over and over and over again to call the audience's attention to a narrative detail that they want the audience to interpret properly, to realize the significance of it. Um, I I didn't at first make any connection between the use of that verb and the use of the noun enthymine. But once I saw the connection, uh, I immediately felt that I was onto something. That there was uh, some connection here between how the orators were using the verb enthymize and how Aristotle and other treatise writers were using the verb enthymeme.
1: And so you found this uh, this, this verb form um, in a variety of different uh, legal arguments from ancient Greek uh, oratory. Which brings us to so so, which brings us to. uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit in particular about um, Lysias.
0: Sure. Uh, uh, Generally, or uh, do you want me to jump into Lysias' encomiums? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Lysias is very well known. He was hugely prolific speechwriter in the ancient world. He was considered one of the masters of his time in the ancient world. He lived before Demosthenes and Demosthenes has eclipsed Lysias as probably the best known legal orator. But in his time, Lysias was probably one of the best known and most prolific speechwriters of his time. So he he taught rhetoric probably, but he's better known as a speechwriter. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of speeches for clients. He was paid to do so. And uh, his... Uh, many, many of his speeches, not all of them, only actually a small portion of them, but it's still a fairly large number of speeches have come down to us that he wrote. And so I focus in the book on one of his speeches. It's actually the first one. It's n- numbered. All of the Attic Order's uh, speeches are numbered. And this is his, uh, the, the first speech, Lysias I. Lysias I mm-hmm. is a speech about an adultery case, uh, a man who kills Uh, an adulterer who has slept with his wife. The law says that if a man catches the adulterer red-handed, he can do what he wishes with him. And that's interpreted to mean anything from um, taking him to court to demanding payment or ransom to killing him. And there's another law, a a justifiable homicide law that, that stipulates that, that says, you know, if you accidentally kill somebody in war, or if you are set upon by a robber and, and kill them in self defense, or if you're in an athletic game and you accidentally kill someone in boxing or wrestling, or if someone, uh, you catch someone on top of your wife, uh, it's justifiable to kill them. You can't be prosecuted as a homicide for that. So, um, this, this man, Euphilitus, kills the adulterer who he catches sleeping with his wife, Eratosthenes, and Eratosthenes' relatives bring him to trial for murder. So the question is, was this an example of him catching his wife in the process, or was this a case of premeditated murder? And it it wasn't lost on the ancients that uh, you could kill somebody and um, use one of the Forms of justifiable homicide to excuse your killing. So the question is whether this this legitimately was uh, a, a case that fell under these two legal tools, these uh, two legal forms. The problem was for Euphilitus that um, he had, it seems he did have some advanced knowledge of his wife's affair. Um, first, there were many clues that the wife left. <laughs> Uh, about the affair she she's an
1: entertaining portion of the book i should it, say it's a
0: it's a very entertaining speech she she uh, uh he it, well I'll, I'll say he when his when his wife's child was born, his child was born uh he he flipped his house upside down in greek houses the man's the man's room the the simple the uh, male's room was on the bottom floor it, so, so that it was easy of access and that's where uh, men would gather to drink and chat and play instruments and sing poetry and, uh, have, you know, girls and boys that they could entertain them. Um, it was an entertaining room. Those are the men's quarters. The women's quarters were mm-hmm. upstairs. And the the, 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 one of the purposes of that was to keep uh, access to women difficult. Um, Athenian men and Greek men in particular were, were, um, a, a little paranoid about their wives and other females of the household. Um, gaining access to the outside world and uh, uh, unrelated men gaining access to them. So women slept upstairs. Their their looms were upstairs and they took care of the babies upstairs. Well, this gentleman, uh, euphilitus says, when my baby was born, I flipped my house upside down so that my wife wouldn't fall down the stairs when she had to go uh, feed the baby. I, I, I was worried that she would hurt herself. So I right. put the women's room downstairs and I put the men's room upstairs. This is an important detail. And this is a case where uh, if we... If we don't remember it, this detail can make a big difference. So this is, this is something that he tells us at the very beginning. Well, sure enough, uh, he's, he's upstairs in his room, which the, the men's room, which is now upstairs, and his wife uh, comes up there after he comes home from the country working on the farm, and she comes up to the bedroom, and they're uh, playing around together up there, and he's ready to go to sleep, and she teases him by locking the door. And she says, you you just want to have a go at the slave girl, at the servant girl. And he laughs about it and she locks him in and he thinks nothing of it. But when he wakes up the next morning, he recalls that he heard the door out, outside courtyard door creaking at night. And when he comes downstairs, he notices that she has makeup on. And he thinks nothing of it. It's a, a trusting few, sort. He's, he's a trusting sort. And you can see how... When narrative details are introduced, they lead to inferences. And I, I don't have much doubt that when Lysias wrote this, he intended the audience to realize, to enthymize what the wife is doing. And also to enthymize that the husband is rather foolish, rather naive. He, he doesn't see what's going on. Uh, When I teach the class, we talk about this. Why would Lysias want to portray a character this way? And my students always immediately understand the answer. answer, And it goes back to the concept I talked about earlier, ethos. When we read a text, we attribute characteristics to the author of the text based on what they say. And the audience uh, of my class recognize that if Euphilitus appears... Foolish enough not to recognize that his wife is having an affair, he won't seem smart enough to have planned this murder. Um, so that's that's the first moment. That's one of the moments where you, Lysias says, uh, or through Euphilitus, I didn't enthymize anything. I didn't realize anything I that was going it. on. I had no I had no, susp- sure. I had no suspicions. Right. So a few days later, Lysias is going about his business and uh, an old woman comes up to him in the marketplace and says, a man is having an affair with your wife. He ruined our household as well. He slept with uh, the, the woman that I work for. And now she's jealous because he's sleeping with your wife and you better go home and take care of things. And that, for the second time, um, in the very middle of this narrative, Euphilitus says, I suddenly realized everything. And he uses that verb, enthamize. I suddenly enthamized everything. My wife wore makeup. The door creaked at night. She locked me in. Um, I need to verify this. <clears throat> so All the says, pieces
1: fell into place.
0: All the pieces fell into place. And that, I, I can tell you, it's a very powerful moment in the narrative. And it's a common feature of narratives for an author to place clues. And it's part of the creative skill that is required of good narrative writing to sprinkle clues throughout the narrative that all connect together to form a picture that for most audience members, while they are reading them, they don't understand the significance of the clues. They don't see how they all fall together to form the picture so that when the author pulls the string and all the pieces fall into place, there's that wonderful moment of clarity, that aha moment. Now I think for, for most of the audience, we, we already sort of see that we know that she's having an affair but we get to uh, experience that vicariously through Euphilitus. We watch him in his aha moment. And as I say in the book, this is very similar to what Aristotle talks about in the poetics about the tragic plot where towards the middle or towards the end of the play, the hero, the protagonist, realizes that everything that's been going on it's the moment when uh, Oedipus discovers all at once that the man that he killed is his father and the woman that he married is his mother and that they are the king and queen and that he, his, his fate, the fate that has been predicted for him, has come true and it all falls into place. So that, you know, that moment of clarity that Aristotle calls agnerosis um, is very similar to what Lysias achieves here, this discovery. So he, he goes to his serving girl, and he questions her, and she confirms it after he tells her that he already knows what happened. And she says, yes, this is what happened, and the wife uh, uh, told me to do this, and I've been the intermediary between him and her. And so he, he says, I'm not going to do anything until I know for sure. I want to see them in action before I do anything, and sure enough, the, the adulterer comes back, and the serving girl runs to him and says, He's in the house, and you better take care of it. And uh, he, he goes out and finds, uh, goes out to gather some neighbors. He wants some assistance to uh, confront this man, and they gather torches in the process. And then he comes back to the house and confronts him and slays him. Um, so that's the end of the narrative. After the narrative uh, is where he does a little bit more explicit enthemizing. And this is where he says, for example, um, he says, remember, ladies and gentlemen, uh, when I was telling my story, I said that I had to go out and get some assistance from the neighbors. But in fact, um, many of my neighbors were not home and some of them were not even in the city. And so I had some difficulty finding people. But he says, just think, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, just think about it for a second and he uses the verb enthymize. If I had planned this, wouldn't I make sure that I had some neighbors home who could assist me? Wouldn't I tell them beforehand so that I could go quickly gather them to assist me? I didn't even know if I'd be able to find anybody. Um, Does that sound like someone who planned everything out? And so there's a, you know, there's a little narrative detail. I went out to people's houses Together assistance. Not to knowing that they were the, even going to be there. And I didn't even know if they were going to be home or not. Why didn't I know? Because I didn't plan this out. There was no premeditation. So you can see how the the narrative detail that is told in the story portion and that is directly related to the legal question gets emphasized later so that the audience can have another one of these little aha moments. Like that proves it, that demonstrates it. And he has a few other examples of narrative details where he does that. Now, what's interesting is that he uses this verb enthemizing in each of those examples. He uses it to describe what he didn't realize his wife was doing. He uses it to describe the aha moment when the serving girl reveals it to him. And here again, he uses it at the end when he wa- wants his audience to realize something that they need to see correctly in order to interpret the law as it relates to his case. And I thought to myself, I don't think that's a coincidence uh, (laughs) that he uses the exact same term once at the beginning of his speech, once in the middle of the story, the exact middle of the story, and once at the end of the speech where he's reminding the audience of which facts to pay attention to um, that seemed like a deliberate move to me. There, there's a progression there that I talk about in the book in terms of how the right. enthymizing works um, that made me think he might be doing something deliberate. And, and that is significant because of the fact that um, s- most scholars in the scholarly tradition suggests that the enthymeme was invented by theory, by theorists. And specifically, that the enthymeme was invented by Aristotle. That this idea that you could use deduction to lead people to a conclusion through reasoning, that, of course, Aristotle would be the one to introduce that. Aristotle would be the one to formalize inference making as a rhetorical tool. And if this is true, if, if Lysias was doing this deliberately, then he was thinking about enthymizing as what I would call a techne as an artistic tool. He wasn't doing it randomly. It wasn't just a colloquial form of writing speeches, um, but it was um, based on practice and based on his developing artistic abilities. This was a repeatable technique that he could use when he wanted to. And I would say that he could teach his students to use. Um, And that would mean that People were theorizing about, if not the enthymeme, they were theorizing about enthymizing uh, long before Aristotle used the term and explained what it meant in terms of dialectic.
1: As I said, this is a a terrific book. Um, I reviewed it last fall. Uh, I did not teach public speaking in the winter, but I'm going to be doing it in the summer. And I'm I'm curious uh, what what impact like I think your idea of enthymizing uh, is such an enlarged idea from what is traditionally taught as the enthymeme. I'm curious as to whether you think or what impact it might have on our practice of teaching speech or composition today.
0: Oh. <laughs> you know, my my first book, I I also talk about Aristotle, and I also talk about what's wrong with Aristotle. A lot of it has to do with... It hasn't made the difference. Uh, uh, it ha- has made no difference. It has absolutely <laughs> zero impact. <imagine. laughs> um, I, I talk in the first book about the, the practice of ancient oratory and how it was performative it you know is delivered and and you're standing in front of a, a crowd of 500 to a thousand you know these are large juries it wasn't or on a the zoom
1: screen today
0: well you're right, right it's not a zoom screen it's not a, an, a you know a courtroom with 12 people it's an open air auditorium with 500 to a thousand you know or more people and these are amateurs and they're facing uh you know scary situations life that, or death yeah right life or death or um, bank, you know, bankruptcy or sure. exile, and they they don't have any speaking experience. So the 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 physical quality of that kind of oratory, I think, is lost if you just read about it through the theorist. So that was the sum some and substance of my first book. And I, I you know, I remember getting a question uh, when I was interviewing for my first job. It was very much like that, like. What impact do you think this will have? And yeah, yeah. and uh, it, it wasn't much. So I really, I really don't know whether whether this is going to be persuasive to other rhetoric scholars or uh, Aristotle scholars or uh, scholars of ancient history. My, you know, my primary audience is rhetoric. I I think that it's a serious mistake to teach the history of rhetoric or to teach rhetorical theory and not talk about narrative, and not talk about narrative reasoning. Uh, what When I define the enthymeme 1.0, or what I'm calling enthymizing, I really talk about it as an example of narrative reasoning. And I think most, I would say the, the, the fundamental way that we make arguments to each other, certainly in the legal sphere, and this has been a big movement in uh, legal studies uh, towards narrative, um, so much of what happens is based on storytelling and even the parts of the argument, parts of ancient and contemporary legal speeches. And I would say other arguments, most kinds of arguments at their core have some kind of story. I think it's almost impossible to get away from that. Um, So I think it's a mistake not to begin teaching rhetorical theory and rhetorical practice and the history of rhetoric from the perspective of storytelling and from the perspective of narrative reasoning. Uh, whether that catches on i don't know but for for me i'll say it it has a lot more experiential familiarity um when i hear when i hear um, people arguing and i hear them telling stories and building their arguments off of stories um, I, I think it's the most natural thing in the world for us to do so but uh, but i don't know <laughs> i don't know how much of an impact this is going to have
1: well, uh, it, if it means anything at all, it, it certainly had an impact on me. Um, well, I'm doing good. some, some serious rethinking about, uh, how I approach a, a speech class coming this summer. Um, I, I think it's, I, I think again, the, the book is terrific. Uh, I want to ask one last thing, uh, which is what are, what's next? What are you, what are you working on now?
0: So i uh, because of this book, I've, begun to read more um, scholarship and argumentation. It's a huge field. It's very daunting. It's not my expertise. I've, you know, I've spent most of my time uh, doing rhetorical theory and ancient rhetorical theory. Um, but the idea of narrative reasoning, uh, I just find very compelling. And I, I don't find much out there about narrative as a form of argument. And in fact, there's traditions uh, within the study of legal argumentation and within the study of argumentation itself that draws a pretty stark distinction between what you're doing when you're telling a story and what you're doing when you're making an argument. And most representations of argument either don't talk about narrative at all, or if they do talk about narrative, they talk about it as uh, possibly a precursor to argument, or more commonly uh, the sort of alternative to argument, the other. Of argument, uh, many many scholars. Um, Jerome Bruner is one of them. Uh, Fisher is another within the field of rhetoric, who basically say, you know, there's there's really two kinds of texts in the world. There's stories and there's arguments. There's two kinds of rationality in the world. There's narrative and there's and there's argument, and they are work differently, and they are different. And when you want to persuade someone through reasoning, you do it through argument. When you want to persuade someone through images and emotions you tell stories. But this book has has shown me a lot of examples where when we read stories, we make inferences, and the inferences that we make are based on facts that are stated. And if Aristotle's definition of syllogismos is, when you hear something stated, or when you hear some things stated, you think of something else, I think to myself, that happens in narrative all the time. I don't think I've ever read a narrative where I haven't been drawing conclusions about actions, about characters, about motives, about relationships, about outcomes. Um, And yet, when people in argument talk about reasoning and making inferences, they just don't talk about narrative. So, my next project is really um, an attempt to describe narrative as a form of argument. And specifically within rhetoric, the term is logos. Uh, ethos is the appeal to character. Pathos is the appeal to emotion. Logos is the appeal to reason or rationality. Logos in rhetoric is treated as argument. And my my next project is to say logos is narrative before it can be argument. Uh, the people have to make inferences about the story that you're telling before they can understand the argument that you're making so that's my next project
1: well i'm going to look forward to reading that when you get it done uh jim friedel thank you for your time today and of course for all of the work that went into this excellent book um, once again the enthymeme syllogism reasoning and narrative in ancient greek rhetoric published by the pennsylvania state university press my name is tom Desena, and this is the education channel of the new books network thank you for joining us